Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. All in all, I felt with the force of my 14-year-old conviction that the Wheel of Fortune had us cupped in its upswing. This program features the work of 2014 writer Claudia Castro Luna. Curator Felicia Gonzalez sat down with her for an interview. What role does writing play in your life? What is it about writing? I think I think of writing as a way of rewriting myself. I think of it as a way of of a recovery of self. And it it's not an easy process for me to sit and write. I feel that I have to get past a whole bunch of barriers that have been absorbed into me and to to find this voice that I think is my is my voice or to find what it is I want to say but it's very important to me to get to that point where that where that voice resides speaking of the history of El Salvador how do you hope that this work engages with the broader world? Well, I guess there's two ways of thinking about that, or at least I think about it two ways. One way is the broader world, that is the world of non-Salvadorans or non-Central Americans. I think that El Salvador captivated the world's attention in the 1980s when the war was really, you know, in the everyday news. Since then, Salvadorans are the fourth largest group of Latino immigrants in the U.S., but very little is known about our history and why is it that we are here. And then for us Salvadorans and Central Americans, I think, at least in my family, and I think this is true of many Salvadorans, the war, we live the war, we live through this war, and then we have put it aside and at least in my family, we never talk about it. That difficulty in revisiting and reliving trauma is, contributes to this silencing. There may be other reasons, but I would hope that writing about it opens up an invitation to talk, and that then leads to, opens up a little space to go to that place that is, that is our history, you know, that is a huge part of what defined us and in talking about it, then releasing the, you know, that, that memory and that pain. Now we'll hear a selection from Claudia's live reading. I'm going to read the piece that is in the anthology. It is titled To Say Goodbye, and it tells the story of my family's last evening in El Salvador as we escaped the Civil War there in the 1980s. To Say Goodbye. Once upon a time, when there was more peace than fighting in our country, a trip to the airport was a happy affair, whether it was to greet someone or to bid them goodbye. Every time my two tias, who lived in Florida and New Jersey respectively, came to visit, Mommy, her three sisters, and two brothers planned a celebration worthy of their long journey. There was the matter of who would pick them up at the airport, what food would await them at Abuela's house, what drink would be at the ready. Between exclamations of, que grande estas, and que linda, 
Mis my tias sipped their drinks and passed around the gifts they brought for every single person in our large extended family. When the gift passing was over, dancing ensued until the early morning hours. When their visit came to an end, we danced and drank and ate all over again, this time to wish them a safe return. On the day of travel, tias, tios, and cousins piled into carts and rented and rented vans and caravan to the airport. In those days, to board a plane meant the travelers walked onto the airport's tarmac and climbed up a metal staircase. No image is more glamorous than the memory of my aunts, sauntering to the awaiting airplane, their shoulder-length dark hair shimmering with the tropical sunlight, their necks adorned with silk scarves. And nothing holds more drama than the sight of their elegant selves atop the landing, telling us, hasta la próxima vez, with the sweep of a slender arm. We waved and shouted back, buen viaje, hasta la próxima, and made mad farewell gestures. It didn't matter one bit that they couldn't see us huddled against the observational windows. We waved even after the plane swallowed them, waved until our arms morphed into a mix of wood and concrete, and we could see their plane gain height and claim the air. Things were very different when it was our turn to leave. By 1981, the entire world knew El Salvador was a place at war with itself a place where the political process went AWOL, lost in the toxic smell of gunpowder. A tiny minority controlled 90% of lands, industry, media, and the military. This oligarchy rigged elections in their favor, and anyone, from academics to rural workers who dare speak against the inequities, was persecuted. People were routinely jailed, tortured, or killed by the various branches of the state's armed forces. The government imposed martial law in a national curfew that started at 7 p.m. A year before our flight out of the country, a new airport was built outside the capital. The new road was flanked by long stretches of wild vegetation and fields. It was on this road, a month before our departure, that three American Marinol nuns and a lay missionary were raped and killed by members of the National Guard. From Rome, John Paul II deplored the collapse of human rights. Washington, D.C. responded by freezing $25 million in aid until the military restructured its high command. For Salvadorans, the murders meant that if the lives of religious women and U.S. citizens were not respected, then no one's would be. We spent our last evening in El Salvador with Tio Juan, his wife Maritza, and his baby son Rodrigo. Conversation was hushed, our accompaniment the sound of sporadic gunfire. The next morning, we would leave El Salvador for the U.S. to join Tia Elena, Mami's sister. Our flight departed early, and we needed to travel before the morning curfew ended. The four of us would make the trip alone, with a hired driver in a rented car. Our extended family had decided that to caravan at that hour was too great a risk. If we fell victims of physical violence or bullets, then only the four of us would suffer. Why endanger anyone else? After dinner, the adults sat lingering at the table and their bodies spoke for them. It is over, said their drawn faces. 
over, echoed their sagging shoulders. Gone were the long weekend lunches, the competitions between the adults to see who could eat the spiciest soup, the loud, chaotic baseball games where everyone from the youngest to the oldest took turn at bat. Gone the long afternoon's conversation sitting underneath the grape arbor on the patio of Abuela's house, sipping coffee and eating pan dulce as sweat glistened on skin. All of it gone. Carmen, who was 11, and I played with baby Rodrigo. We clapped and squealed as he stumbled, taking tentative steps back and forth between us. But only the bright-colored fabric of the living room furniture echoed our fun. From the corner of my eye, I saw Mami and Maritza walk into one of the bedrooms, and soon after, Mami called. Claudia, vení para acá, she instructed. Un momento, Mami, I groaned back, not wanting the game with Rodri to end. When I walked into the room, Maritza grabbed my arm, led me straight to the bathroom, and quickly snapped the door shut as soon as we were inside. Mami was there waiting. ¿Qué pasa? I asked. Something was obviously going on. Maritza spoke first. Es que vos y tu mami van a llevar algo especial, she said, her voice low, audible only in the confines of the cramped space. Mami stepped forward, pulling a white thing from a bag. Mira, este es un cotex que hemos partido a la mitad para cargar dinero. To carry money, Mommy said, showing me a sanitary napkin slit lengthwise and stuffed with hundred-dollar bills. Maritza's voice was urgent. Te lo vas a poner mañana antes de salir y no te lo quites hasta que estés en el avión, ¿entendés? I looked down at the thick pad stuffed with the green rectangular pieces of paper that held my parents' small wealth and our future. I looked back at each of them. Mommy had a nervous, shy, pleading look. I thought about the way she handled my preparation into womanhood. She gave me two sorbet-colored pamphlets that told me about the biological changes I would experience. But what I wanted most, and didn't get, was a warm conversation. I chased the thought away and nodded my agreement instead. Yes, I would wear the pad, but I was worried. I had never been on an airplane. How was I ever going to know at what point on the next day's flight it would be safe to take the pad out? Was Mommy going to tell me? Did Papa know about this? Did Tio Huang? <laughs> I didn't ask them questions and offered no objections. I understood that my youth could fool an assailant from searching me and certainly from searching me in the confines of my crotch. The coldness of the porcelain sink, the clean surface of the mirror, contrasted with the warm secrecy, the vulnerability of the task I was being entrusted. The moment engulfed me. I got a morsel of the intimacy I craved in a key into adulthood, and I was not going to ruin the moment by asking questions. The next day was Saturday, January 17, 1981. We rose in darkness. Carmen and I slipped our new trousers and put on our new blouses bought for the occasion. In the bathroom, I took the adhesive off the pad and attached it to my underwear. My sister's responsibility was to carry money inside her light brown Mary Janes. The night before, Mami and Maritza carefully calibrated how much money she would carry without forcing her gait. Punctually at 5.30, the man who was to drive us to the airport arrived. While he placed the four small suitcases and the cardboard box with books in the back of the van, 
we stood on the sidewalk and embraced Tio Juan and Maritza. The sound of the trunk shutting told us it was time to leave. The white van had facing seats, so Mommy and Papa sat next to each other, and Carmen and I sat together across from them facing the driver's window. We waved, and Maritza, who held our still-sleeping baby cousin in one arm, used the other to say goodbye. To leave meant to survive, yet the taste of victory lasted the length of a breath. Sewn into the pocket of our gain was an immeasurable loss. We were leaving, but our loved ones were staying behind, and there was no end in sight, no relief to the hell all around. Soon enough, our silent bodies gave in to the van's inertia. For the first time ever, I watched tears leak out of Papa's eyes. We drove through, the, through deserted city streets, drifted past revolutionary slogans, hasta la victoria siempre, libertad para presos políticos, past the sprayed initials of resistance organizations, RN, ERP, FPL. The van ate the black road underneath, bringing us closer to the lonely stretch of road where the nuns were murdered. I went from witnessing my parents' contorted faces to sensing the stiff pad between my legs. The bills jabbed me when I walked, and they jabbed me now that I was sitting down. Every slight movement on my part conjured their presence. The more sharpness I felt, the more I held on to the Barbie doll I carried. My Barbie was a prized possession, and I took great care of it. Tia Elena had brought it for me on one of her trips. In a role reversal, I was now taking it back to its birth country. It spoke English, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I figured she could be an ally in our new home. Just then, I felt a flurry of excitement. After wondering for years what the United States was like, I was going to call it home. What toys and food awaited us? What would my voice sound like in English? The van sped forward. In our own way, each of us knew that making it to the airport would seal our journey's triumph. Emotions, each with a different hue, layered themselves inside me. Sadness over discomfort, fear over excitement. Creating a kaleidoscopic pattern in that deep place at the back of the eye were recent falters. The superimposed collage purple over green, navy over peridot, replaced forever the notion that life could be seen through one rose-colored hue. All in all, I felt with the force of my 14-year-old conviction that the wheel of fortune had us cupped in its upswing. Before noon, the plane that carried us to Miami flew along a stretch of Pacific Ocean where waves crashed against volcanic black beaches. Four days after we landed in Florida, civil war was officially declared in El Salvador. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2014 curator of this program is Felicia Gonzalez. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Jen Hammond. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. 
theme music by two trios with Victor Noriega, Jeff Johnson, and Greg Campbell, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>